This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey everyone, Ray here, and I've got your next read for you. Growing up in Sydney, Australia, Tony Bernard had an idyllic beachside childhood and idolized his father, Henry a respected doctor. But his father harbored deep, agonizing secrets, never talking about his war experiences or the concentration camp tattoo on his arm. That is, until he saw Steven Spielberg's film Schindler's List. Then the deep truths of his father's moral dilemma, serving as a volunteer member of the Nazis' ghetto police, would finally come to light. The ghost tattoo, Discovering the Truth of My Father's Holocaust, is recognized by war historians as one of the most factual and detailed accounts of life as a Polish-Jewish policeman. Thomas Connelly, author of Schindler's List, notes, This extraordinary narrative is a powerful instance of the transgenerational impact of the Holocaust. Author Tony Bernard writes that his father, Henry, repeatedly survived the unthinkable from the ghetto to camps to countless near-death experiences and made his way to the sunny shores of Australia, but the trauma lingered just underneath the surface. The ghost tattoo is available everywhere books are sold. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 438, The Longest One-Day Casualty List in Canadian History. Last time, the survivors, in whatever form, were returning from the Dieppe disaster. Whereas the early morning hours on the French coast had seen the shedding of blood on British shores, the story was that the raid had surely given the Huns hell. That it was not a success was a foregone conclusion, but that did not mean the people had to learn of this. After all, public morale was a war measure that had to be massaged in today's parlance. But how was that going to happen? The Daily Mirror got things going with the headline, 
Big Hun losses in nine-hour Dieppe battle. The Toronto Star was next. Canadians' spearhead battle at Dieppe helped smash Nazi opposition. Yet these articles were full of communiques put out by Mountbatten's Combined Operations Headquarters. Further, it's not that these articles outright lied. They just spun, obfuscated, misled, left out, and explained the events from a certain point of view. For example, it was reported that there were heavy losses on both sides, which was only half true. Next, the radio station that was claimed to have been destroyed was a red herring. What they did not say was that the radar station, much more important, on the eastern headland, that was still operational. As for the losses of airplanes on both sides, yes, the RAF had come out better, but not by much. Yet even this was described as a victory. The Allies could hardly thrive in a war of attrition, so kept that quiet. But unlike the unexpected German convoy going by early that morning, which raised the alarm sooner than expected, the newspapers in general did not give off a warning. Instead, they towed the line and injected the impression of success in these stories. Telling the people something less than truthful is one thing, but trying that with Churchill and the war cabinet, that is another kettle of fish. So the planners behind Jubilee got together to get their story straight first. The morning after the raid, Thursday, August 20th, Mountbatten, Lieutenant Generals Andrew McNaughton and Harry Carrere, the force commanders, and parts of their staff, got together to fashion a report. It read, not unlike the newspaper's headlines from the day before, the successes, limited in scope as they were, were talked up, while the scale of the losses were minimized. First, Hughes Hallett stated that naval operations had gone according to plan and the unexpected German convoy had not given the game away. As Hughes Hallett put it, since the lighthouse near Dieppe continued to function, even after the first landings took place. The term circumstantial evidence comes to mind. Of course, the real story is what happened on land. But the battalion commanders, who would normally be front and center right now, telling of the events, they were either dead or captured. The one that survived was in hospital, severely wounded. So the brass went with the Navy's version of what they saw on the beaches, or rather, what they thought they saw on the beaches. They emphasized the success of landing the men, and of course, that was when it was still dark, and the enemy mostly did not know of their existence. They also threw in that the RAF had done well in protecting the men. A truth, if looked at askew, with one eye closed. Which is when General Ham Roberts mentioned that, unfortunately, the enemy's gun positions were well manned when they arrived, thus hinting that surprise may not have been complete. To this, Mountbatten stepped in and corrected the general's summation. His lordship stressed that the Germans were smart enough to be on alert every morning and that the conditions of weather and tide might have increased their state of alarm. Ham Roberts accepted this version and altered his point of view. As Jubilee had been approved because Churchill had been told that surprise was possible, that had to remain a part of the narrative. Facts be damned. So Mountbatten had Colonel Neville 
the Combined Operations Royal Marines advisor, and a good friend, look into whether the operation was leaked. It will come as no surprise that Neville found no leak. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. As for the Prime Minister, he was in Cairo having just finished his first meeting with Stalin. But even before that bruising meeting, Churchill had already been roughed up by his age, his health, the heat, and travel. Before visiting Moscow, Churchill stopped in Cairo. While there, he relieved Claude Auchinleck at CNC. The area would be split into two commands, the Near East and Middle East, Harold Alexandria in India would now be C&C Near East, and Lieutenant General William Gott would take command of 8th Army. Yet frustrating Churchill's plans, Gott died as his plane was shot down on August 7th, which would lead to Bernard Montgomery taking over 8th Army. Considered by some as Britain's answer to French General and Royal Payne de Gaulle, Monty would also be the answer to Rommel though, it has to be said, much of the work of that had been done for him by his predecessors, and of course, David Sterling's SAS Raiders, who made the Desert Fox's life a living hell, having his supplies constantly attacked. Churchill arrived in Moscow on August 12th. The series of meetings would accomplish much, though it may not have seemed like it at the moment. Here's a quick view of the emotional roller coaster that Stalin took Churchill on. The Soviet leader admitted that times were hard for his people, certainly the army. Currently, the Germans were pushing hard on Baku and Stalingrad, but the defenders were doing their utmost. Speaking of doing their utmost, Churchill was asked, when will the Second Front be opened? This was the moment that Churchill had been dreading. He told the taciturn, pockmarked face of Stalin that, After an exhaustive Anglo-American examination, the Western powers would not be ready to launch a cross-channel attack in September of that year. They were now looking at 1943, but should be able to throw 48 divisions into this endeavor. Stalin frowned, which normally meant someone was about to disappear. Now, Stalin could not have Churchill shot, but he could do something much worse. He could make a separate peace with Hitler, who would then be free to focus on North Africa, the Middle East, and, of course, his own cross-channel invasion. 
But Stalin calmed the prime minister by saying, that will not happen. No, Stalin could not shoot Churchill, but he could make him twist in the wind, which he proceeded to do. The Soviet leader asked, why were the British so afraid of the Germans? Churchill, who was feeling relief wash over him at being told there would not be a separate peace, was now starting to get angry. But he tried to hold his tongue. He told the Soviet warlord, If need be, as the war went on, we hoped to shatter almost every dwelling in almost every German city. This, of course, would be the work of Bomber Command. And this statement removed the frown from Stalin's face. On better ground now, Churchill went over to the offensive. There might not be a massive second front this year, but, and President Roosevelt has allowed Churchill to share this, there would be a landing in French North Africa of American, British, Free French, and other troops. Further, there would be a massive raid on the French coast, i.e. Dieppe, and Churchill hoped that this would make the Germans nervous and bring men from the east to help guard the West Coast. There would be more conversations, and Stalin would not hesitate to use sarcasm and belittling statements. Churchill, not used to such treatment, fired back. That is, until the American Avril Harriman told him, that's just Stalin's way. Focus on the words, not on the emotions swirling around the room. The Prime Minister did this, and things got better. Still, by the end of it, though both men had a better understanding of each other, Churchill's pride and soul, now along with his body, was bruised. Which is when he received Mountbatten's preliminary report. Though Churchill had been informed of when the fleet had left harbor that afternoon, he received an update. It was brief, too brief, and cautiously worded. The 65-year-old had been around long enough to know that this, this boded ill. And yet, being a wily politician himself, who had just gotten emotionally thrashed by Stalin, Churchill sent his own message to Mountbatten, telling him to call the operation a reconnaissance in force, which meant that all standard definitions of success and failure just went out the window. To this, Mountbatten sent another report stating that tactical surprise was achieved and that the synchronization of each part of the assault was perfect, while emphasizing Number 4 Commando as they had the most success, limited as it was. But leave it to the equally wily Mountbatten to not only contradict himself, but also to put a bit of the blame on Churchill. In his report, one line went, This was an invasion which had taken us ten months to prepare, but that this raid bears all the signs of having been hastily conceived in four or five days as a result of instructions received from you after visiting Russia. The ten months that he mentioned, that was about the other plans, like Sledgehammer. But Churchill could read in between the lines well enough. His burdens were not eased by Jubilee. But if this operation was a success, surely London would want to share more of what happened. Why not tell of the amazing exploits to give those putting up with being bombed and grueling shifts in a factory a lift in their spirits? On the other hand, combined operations had better get their version out quick 
before the Germans released film of hundreds of prisoners recently captured. Thus, the government and press worked hand in hand. First, the bravery and courage of the soldiers was put on the front burner. But that the Canadians were the majority of those that went ashore was downplayed. Next, American support was emphasized to the point that reality was left behind. This was to placate the Americans when the casualty numbers came out. Perhaps Washington would be inundated with demands that Nazi Germany be attacked forthwith. But the truth slowly came out. The Toronto Star wrote that this was mostly a Canadian affair, but instead of emphasizing the number of dead and captured, they, taking a cue from London, focused on the men's bravery. And it helped to sufficiently muddy the waters by London passing out 61 military crosses and MMs, military medals, and 12 DSOs, or Distinguished Service Order. But what really helped spin this tale of blood and loss was the idea that this undertaking had been noble, because it was a dress rehearsal for something much larger to come, the longed-for Second Front. In other words, the losses were bad, but nothing compared to what had just been learned by doing it. Lives were exchanged for knowledge. After all, the real Second Front was coming. But the Germans came out with their version, and at least for now, they did not have to lie. Berlin labeled it as a failed invasion, saying the enemy had suffered a decisive defeat. His attempt at invasion served only political purposes and was contrary to all military common sense. Yet this was only the opening salvo. In the coming weeks, the Germans had thousands of pamphlets dropped over British towns in the south. But instead of words, well, one word, Dieppe, there were instead 29 pictures showing wrecked landing craft still aflame, bodies in awkward positions on the beach, near the beach wall, and beside damaged tanks. And then there were the bodies bobbing up and down in the waves. And lastly, a few pictures of wounded Allied troops being bandaged or simply offered a cigarette by a German soldier. Overall, the German press releases were on the up and up, but it was Vichy that crowed the loudest. One newspaper wrote that the raid was ordered by Moscow and that London had celebrated too soon. But that was Vichy, the government. The people, well, people are people. And that's a good thing. Lieutenant Commander Redverse Pryor, the senior naval beachmaster who led the South Saskatchewans to Green Beach, was injured four times that day. He would be captured, and like the others, he was eventually put on a train to Rouen. But during the trip, he jumped off and he hid in a barn. And though the Nazis had made it clear to the French to help the enemy was to die, this farmer hid Pryor for three days and gave him food and clothes. And just before Pryor left, the farmer handed over 1,500 francs. The commander would eventually be recaptured, but was helped again to escape this time by a minister of the Church of Scotland, Donald Caskey. Caskey had been trapped in France when the Germans invaded, so hightailed it to Paris. In time, he would be imprisoned, but released, only after almost getting shot by a firing squad. 
Staying in Vichy territory for the remainder of the war, he would go on to assist 500 Allied troops and airmen in escaping. Back to Pryor, he would escape and make it back home in 43, only to return when the Allies came back to the mainland on D-Day. But in late 43, he, Pryor, stood for election in the Birmingham-Aston by-election and won. Others of the Dieppe disaster were also helped by French locals, including the artillery spotter on Blue Beach, George Brown, and Lucien Dumas of the Fusiliers Mont-Royal. And as Mountbatten's report to Churchill was less than honest, so too was the German report that went to Berlin, saying that the French were more than correct, that they helped the German forces during the fighting. In reality, like most non-trained people, they kept their heads down. But getting in on the act was Dieppe's mayor, René. He was told by the German authorities that they would receive 10 million francs to help with repairs. But the mayor said, thanks, but if possible, can we have instead the troops from this area who are now sitting in camps? As Hitler was in a good mood, the raid had been an abject failure, he agreed. Almost 1,600 local men were returned to Dieppe. But it would be the exact opposite for Canada. The people back home wanted to know how many men they had lost, and the task of gathering that information was cumbersome, given that the wounded had been sent to various locations. Before September 15th, the best number that could be come up with was 925. That is, 925 for the dead, wounded, or captured. But the number that came out after that was 3,350. The various Canadian newspapers needed several editions to print every single name. In the end, officers and politicians wanted to know the casualty rate. This would help determine how costly the mission was, and thus if it was successful or not. Now that the numbers had been broken down, Jubilee had a casualty rate of 67%. Again, that's dead, wounded, missing, and captured combined. Thus, of the 4,963 Canadians who made the trip to France, 907 were killed or died of their injuries, and 1,946 were now prisoners with at least 568 of them being wounded. This might be the Second World War, but these casualty numbers were just as bad as the first conflict. Canada was shocked, stunned at the results of their first encounter with the Germans. Some in Britain were calling the raid a success. Canada was not. And then the stricken people learned that for all of their sacrifice, Dieppe itself had never been captured. What else was London not telling them? The answer to that, of course, was, we can't tell you because of security. And now thus armed with the true numbers, Canadian newspapers howled over the country's losses. As the Ottawa Journal put it, if the Germans attacked a British port and suffered the same number of losses, London would be bragging of an incredible victory. But the pain of loss was felt more on the local level. After all, these boys were from cities, towns, and villages from across the country. 
Everyone knew someone who had lost a son or a member of their family. And then the official letters started arriving. A Mrs. Elizabeth Murphy of Windsor, Ontario, received four telegrams in 24 hours, telling her that three of her sons were now POWs, and the fourth was dead. And then the letters from the prisoners themselves started to arrive. The gist of much of these early letters was that the troops themselves told their families that they felt surprise had not been achieved in the battle. Indeed, that they never really had a chance to mix it up with the Germans, as they barely got off the beach. These letters kept the pain and loss very much alive. Most letters ended with, Don't worry about me. We are being treated okay. There's food and shelter. How much of this was true, or would stay true, is up for debate. At the very least, these young men did not want their mothers crying themselves to sleep, thinking about their boys. But then something happened, and the goodwill shown to Allied and Axis prisoners would sour. And instead of battling each other, the two sides battled over how they treated said prisoners. And again, those in captivity were the losers. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So, just saying hi to some people. Let's see here. Uh, Jared Hawk recently became a member from Boise, Idaho. Thank you, Jared. Um, as far as donations, let's see. William Mattingly just made a donation. Thank you very much. And I got a special... Uh, I got an email from Dale Fowler from Austin, Texas. Um, he wrote to me a couple of years ago, said he found the uh, found the uh, podcast and was listening to the episodes during a you know kind of rough time in his life and it helped him. And so he just wanted to become a member now and check out the membership episodes. So Dale, from me to you, Godspeed and don't spare the smiles. Take care, everyone.